You're listening to Cinepunked. I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. This episode, Everybody's in Movies. Today, uh, I'm still in uh, California, and uh, <laughs> I, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in town, so I catch up with an old friend, uh, and so we're joined today by Mr. David Del Val, uh, who is, well, best known to some of us as a film historian uh, and critic, and... Um, experts in, in all things Hollywood and cinema and horror in particular. Well, Robert, the whole idea that we've known each other for all these years, and this is our first face-to-face encounter, is definitely enough reason to do this podcast alone, much <laughs> less the fact that our interests are always the same. And uh, hopefully you're going to do a book of my interviews from over the years, the print ones anyway. Yeah. Um, and so we've been talking about that for quite some time. Are you joy- enjoying being in Hollywood? Is it everything you thought it would be, or is it a little disappointing? It's, oh, well, I've only been here for a couple of days, so I haven't had the, uh, the joy of seeing everything as I would like to have. Um, but it is a, it's an interesting place. It's, it's definitely a, a place of make-believe and um, fantasy and fabrication. Well, what, what I always found strange about Hollywood was that as much as it depends on tourism and its past and its affiliation with show business past, present, and future, they keep tearing down anything that remotely uh, has historical value mm-hmm. to where when you came into town the other day, I was able in one afternoon to show you all the landmarks that were on Hollywood Boulevard, which were mainly the Egyptian theater, the Chinese theater... Uh, the Pig and Whistle restaurant, uh, Musso and Frank's, Amoeba Records, and a couple of other locations. Of course, we did miss the Chateau Marmont and a couple of things where more uh-huh. famous were celebrities dying like John Belushi, etc. But uh, otherwise, I think in three days you pretty much have seen our landmarks as opposed to, you know, other things and film festivals and so on. It's quite sad to think that um, Hollywood has gone that way, but then that's also fairly indicative of many of the major cities now. I, mean, I know. Back home in Belfast, we were going through something similar, and a lot of uh, what was there is gradually being torn down, pulled away, and uh, abandoned. Well, you know, progress comes at a price, and uh, I suppose we shouldn't... I try not and become the curmudgeon that all of us do at one point or another <laughs> and start thing, saying things were better in the past. Yeah. Things were different in the past. I think there was a naivete, which I certainly see in movies. I have so many friends my age that will begin by saying, well, I only watch documentaries now. I have no interest in modern, current movies because they're such rubbish. It's nothing but superheroes Mm -hmm. and, and bullshit. And, you know, there are great movies still being made, but I think you have to seek them out, and you can't let you know, the, the, the public taste to be your taste. Mm-hmm. You have to be individual. I think being individual, the one thing that's lacking in Hollywood right now is imagination because we're trapped in a world of reboots and franchises and remaking what's already been made. And, and that is a lamentable situation to be in when we have such a wealth of, of uh, fiction Horror fiction, weird fiction, science fiction, most of it, a good deal of it in public domain, Mm -hmm. where no one is is tapping into it. Must we remake Dracula every five minutes or 
The Mummy or, or Frankenstein or reboot old 60s television shows. I mean, can't we move into material? M.R. James, classic writer. Mm. All his stories, public domain. No one's doing them. No. I have to go way back to the BBC doing those wonderful Christmas ghost stories they did. They also rebooted Casting the Runes uh, that was made into Night of the Demon, Curse of the Demon. But mm. I don't think there's as much interest in gothic horror now as there is like uh, police procedural movies mixing with, with horror, you mm. know. Jack the Ripper versus Sherlock Holmes is gone, but now it's Ted Bundy versus... But then these things are always going to change anyway. Tastes will, will kind of ebb and flow. And obviously if you look at, at what was going on in those classic periods of horror, I mean, there is a, a moment where that stuff is, is very much flavour of the month. Um, yeah. So whether it be the Universal Cycle in the 30s, which ends up descending into that mess in the 40s, or it's the Hammer films in the 50s and early 60s. They all and descend. Hammer descended. Tygon yeah. descended. Fox just got sold to Disney. I mean, I love the fact that Rocky Horror could now be a Disney princess. That's all kind <laughs> of a, But, you know, I think one of the things that's, that's, that's informing the decade we're in now is the fact that a lot of people, a lot of younger, the demographic for like 18 to 25, uh -huh. they're not reading as much as previous generations. Yeah. If you're not reading, you're when someone tells me Anne Rice is their favorite writer, I know they aren't reading. <laughs> they're not reading. They're not reading much of anybody, are they? Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's it's like mass consumption versus, you know, back in a different era. Uh -huh. You know, when I look now Roger Corman's having a birthday today. He's now 93 years old. And Roger made movies in the 60s which are referred to as the Poe cycle, which yeah. began with House of Usher and ended with Tomb of Lygia. You look at those now, they're like fairy tales. There's nothing remotely... I mean, yes, there's subtext and so forth if you want it to be there. Roger certainly never stopped to think about those things. But mm. uh, they're like fairy tales. There's nothing remotely like the films like Hostel or Saw or the movies of today. And it's because we're in a different... A different Time, but then know. Roger himself was a master of exploitation. I mean, he he starts doing these films relatively cheaply, picks up on little little things, and I mean, I I, I talked to him a few years ago about about his post cycle uh, and about his work with Vincent Price in particular. Uh, and I mean, I I drew a parallel between what he was doing and the stuff that Hammer was doing mm -hmm. because I think aesthetically, well, they were definitely counterparting each other. I, Roger will tell you that no, not at all. <laughs> There's no connection whatsoever. But I think it's fairly obvious when you look at it on screen. There's a, certainly a, an aesthetic about the two that, that overlap. There's certainly a, a subject matter that's overlapping. Um, but then I guess Roger's very keen on... on well, if you, if, own, you, if, you put, if you freeze Roger for a minute and reopen the grave of Samuel Z. Arkoff, yeah, you'll see that all the horror cycles have to do with money. <laughs> the fact that the fact that in 1958, uh -huh. when Hammer did Dracula, in Mexico they were doing Il Vampiro, mm -hmm. in Japan they were doing one, and then Italy, everyone, it's so astonishing to me, a country so steeped in superstition and Catholicism, it took to the late 50s for them to get on the bandwagon of Gothic and uh, Gothic horror, and it took... Uh, e Vampiri, which was started out as a Ricardo Freda movie, and then 
Mario Bava was a brilliant cameraman then was actually directing things and mm -hmm. he's attributed with a lot of Ivan Piri then they gave him La Mosca del Demonio but in 1958-1960 you can see a horror revival in every country and they all came out at the you know when Hammer did the reboot of Dracula Frankenstein they did it in Mexico mm -hmm. they did it in Italy mm -hmm. and then the United States you know Roger, being ever so frugal, realized Poe is public domain. So was Lovecraft, but Lovecraft wouldn't become known until Roger miffed a little with the Haunted Palace mm -hmm. and really did the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Then Danny Haller, who was their art director, moved up to director and did what is arguably the first Lovecraft adaptation, which was Die, Monster, Die, uh, with Karloff. Um, whose house was being redecorated, so he loved being on this set. <laughs> I just sit here and drink my tea and wait for Evie to call me and tell me the workmen have left. You know, it's not one word about the movie he's making at all, which I thought's hilarious. But uh, in any case, no. And I mean, they didn't need to revive Dracula and Frankenstein. They had, you know, the House of Usher, and they realized that with Vincent Price, they had the next generation... Uh, Karloff Lugosi. But then what's nice about what, what Corman's doing is that these are, it's, it's essentially a very American gothic car, rather, well, fair enough, you've got a bunch of Brits uh, in the cast, but when you're looking at someone like Poe, I mean, this is this is a, an American writer, rather than, say, Stoker, well, who's an Irishman, or Shelley, right. you know, they're taking something from the, the, the British are kind of doing the British stuff. The Americans are doing something that's decidedly American. Lovecraft the same. Um, but look how Hammer and AIP paralleled each other in the way they put these cookie cutter things together because mm. they are cookie cutter. Yeah. Of course, I would have, this would have been blasphemy when I was 12 and I was so in awe of all this stuff. But now, come on. Uh, <laughs> you know, first of all, you had Danny Howler who redressed those sets to beat the band, where one, I, I used to count them by the blue and red candles in the different Poe movies. <laughs> okay, then you get Bernard Robinson over at Hammer, uh -huh. that's redressing that same little set like mad. Yeah. I mean, these two guys were doing the same thing, redressing the same sets, revamping the basically the same story. Because every Poe movie, regardless of the twicks and turns, it's basically the House of Usher retold over and over and over again. Sure. The only time it got amusing, and Roger was like surprised, and he was the director, uh, and I've sat with him in Q&As with this, uh, in Tales of Terror, because that was a portmanteau, we mm. did like uh, The Black Cat, The Cask of Amontillado, combining them. And Peter Laurie and Vincent Price had this amazing chemistry together. So the wine tasting scene in that that's totally satirical and it's Poe, it's it's inspired by Poe, which is actually better because trying to, as as Roger will tell you, trying to translate Poe's short story into a feature film or a, a poem like The Raven into a, he can't do it. No. But you just turn in the tropes of of you know, duplicitous wives, revenge from the grave, premature burial, blah, blah, blah. Black cats and ravens, graveyards. It's all there. And then add some fog and then have Vincent Price with his catalog of facial tics <laughs> and vocal, but which I did the commentary for the Tower of London, the second one, the one that he did that Roger and his brother Gene did. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see a camp performance, watch Mr. Vincent Price play Richard III. 
It is absolutely. And you know, but I mean, this is what you pay to see. Sure. So, but at the time he was making these pictures, the critics were rather unkind to him, especially with his performance in Pit and the Pendulum, which now is a, a, a I mean, it's an amazing movie, Pit and the Pendulum. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Pit may be my favorite of the Poe directed uh, Corman movie, uh, Poe movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, everyone has a favorite. And, you know, mine fluctuates. You know, Vincent used to say, that Tomb of Lygia was his favorite movie. But then Theater of Blood came out, and now that was his favorite movie. Theater of Blood's great. Theater of Blood's great. Uh, well, the, so are the Dr. Fives movies, which also have eccentric deaths, you know, showcasing eccentric deaths. Uh-huh. But what's so spectacular about Theater of Blood is that there's no one better at killing off <laughs> his critics <laughs> with no better motive. I uh-huh. mean, just his reviews alone for Tower of London. Would have got the knives out, I think. But no, I do think Hammer and AIP were definitely in the market of selling horror, both uh, local and and internationally. Mm-hmm. And uh, AIP started buying up European movies and releasing them, of course, which is how they got Black Sunday and how they got, you know, um, uh, a lot of the Mario Bava titles like Planet of the Vampires and mm-hmm. so on. But uh, then let us not forget Amicus mm-hmm. and Tygon. I had a special relationship with Tygon because I got to know Tony Tenser, who was one of the last of what I call the Wardour Street boys, these rough-and-tumble guys that look like they came out of performance. You know, very, uh, you know, in-your-face and, you know, good old boys, and uh, you're the Jack the Lad, mm. you know, and that was very much what Tony was like. And when I arrived in London, they were premiering Blood on Satan's Claw, or called Satan's Skin, and The Beast in the Attic, which had a great cast, but the movie was just a train wreck. But Satan's Skin, the minute I saw it, I knew it was a classic. And I went back, and Tony wanted to cut the scene where the skin's being cut off the girl's leg Mm -hmm. early. And if you're familiar with the movie, you'll know that's a... Uh, it's um, uh, Tamara Ustinov. It's Peter Ustinov's daughter, I think, that's having her, this thing done. And I told him to leave the movie alone. Apparently, there was it was supposed to have been a uh, anthology movie, right? And then it was decided to make it just one movie, which is why there are things in it that are never explained. You know, like the woman that's entertaining Patrick Weimark. She goes into the forest. We never see her again. Mm-hmm. So that story was like. You know, the the three connecting stories before the big payoff with mm-hmm. Linda Hayden and the devil. Um, it, but the music, the atmosphere, it's probably... I prefer it to Witchfinder General, mm-hmm. which is not really a supernatural movie at all. It's no, historical. It's, it, it's an historical horror. It's historical. And, and, a, and a kind of proper horror in the sense that this is the actual horror of the world that... that well, yeah, and it's in. a very unpleasant... It's not a kind of movie I would whip on the... You know, the shove in the DVD player just because I want to, you know, like music. Because Witchfinder General is a decidedly nasty, ugly movie that contains a performance of Vincent Price that everyone will always talk about because it's atypical of what he was doing for Roger. Mm. But that was because he locked horns with a 23-year-old kid. And basically, you know, the legend is that... uh, Vincent said, I've made over 183 movies, young man. What have you done? And 
Michael reputedly said, three good ones. Which is not true, because no. the three movies he's discussing, The Sorcerer's Revenge of the Blood Beast, or The She-Beast, and uh, uh, whatever he did on Castle of the Living Dead, I mm. was not, I mean... Uh, the Sorcerer's is, is, is pretty beastly. The Sorcerer's but, is, is a lot of but fun. Revenge of the, the She-Beast one's awful. Well, the She-Beast is like, that was made on a nickel, yeah. and Barbara Steele was worked like 19 hours nonstop, and that was it for her, but... Uh, no, I mean there's charm in all those things, but see, it's a career. It's a career that was that was. It's incomplete. We will never know if Michael had done the oblong box. Mm. I it didn't do much for Gordon Hessler, and I did it. Uh, if if Mike had done, would he have been the great savior of British cinema? I don't know. There were three Michaels during this period. It was Michael Armstrong that did Mark of the Devil and Haunted House of Horror and was a screenwriter. Michael Sarn, that was close friends with the editor of Films and Filming, Robin Bean. He made a few movies and then did Myra Breckenridge. And then there was Michael Reeves. Mm. All three of these Michaels have suffered career deaths of one kind or another. Michael Sarn was destroyed after Myra Breckenridge. And Mike, Sar Mike Armstrong could not direct. And his writing, you know, he lived with me for eight months, so... Mm -hmm. What do you do when you do that? You know, I like Mike, but you know, I mean, he had a really rough time of it. Yeah. And Mike Reeves, dead of an overdose, or as they say in England, death by misadventure. Yeah. Um, so who's to say if Reeves had lived, would he have been the new Don Siegel? I don't know. So uh, it would be very easy for us to chat here for an hour about our mutual love of horror films, because uh, that, that is how I first encountered you, was reviewing... I think the first thing I did was I reviewed a DVD release of the Sinister Image, so your your interview with Vincent with, with Price, Vincent Price, yes, um, that came out on DVD in two thousand and two, uh, and then you were a regular contributor to things like Little Shop of Horrors, and there wasn't there's... Psychotronic Magazine was one of my favorite things to contribute to. Michael Weldon, I had so much admiration for because he literally took what was a mimeographed newsletter and turned it into a magazine, uh -huh. and it was a great magazine. Filled with outrageous 42nd Street flesh pot grease, you know, grindhouse. He was doing grindhouse before anybody. And then I did more print interviews for Tim Lucas at Video Watchdog than anybody. So, how did you get into. Uh, I would like to look more at your career rather than sort of the things that, that get you fired up. Oh, yeah. Um, what got you into sort of writing about this stuff in the first place? What's well, your, your, I, was, I was a monster kid. So, I grew up in the 1950s where if you wanted to watch horror movies you saw them on television so I was a, I was a very impressionable little boy of like seven or eight years old when I first see the shock theater package of the Universal's Dracula Frankenstein the first run of Karloff Lugosi then the Wolfman in the 40s and then right up to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and then I was an impressionable lad during the insect fear films of the 50s and of course trying to lure people into the theaters when television was becoming so popular and I was a child during this period so mm. I also was exposed to the horror hosts like Zachary and uh, I'm too young for Vampira uh, who was legendary by the time I was seven or eight years old mm. because she was in the very early 50s and you know I was born in 1949 so I didn't really start resonating movies until like 56, 57, which was the heyday of 
insect fear films, science fiction. I saw Forbidden Planet first run. I had a little Robbie the Robot, which I still wish I had. And then I realized that these movies were more than just entertainment because I was going through all the problems that children go through right up through puberty, which was, you know, sexual awareness, feeling different from the others, uh, being shy. Movies were a form of escape. And then, of course, when you're like seven or eight and you realize death exists, then horror movies become a metaphor for sex and death, the marriage bed and the grave. No, we had a walk down uh, Hollywood Boulevard the other day, and you did tell me a story about <laughs> <laughs> about the impact of death on you as a kid. I, I'd, I'd like you to share that. Oh, well, you know, I when you're little, I think that parents give you little ducks and hamsters and goldfish so that you learn that death comes to all. Mm -hmm. But when you, if you really think about the first time you realize that your parents are not going to be with you forever, and with me, I was like raised by my mom. So when I when I finally realized that she would that she wasn't going to be forever, I was just like I didn't know what to do. Unfortunately, this paralleled Walt Disney making two movies that are more horrifying than anything put out by Hammer or AIP, Bambi and Dumbo. Both films depict, in, in no uncertain terms, the death of a parent, but a mother. And when you're an impressible, impressionable little kid and Bambi loses her mother, I lose my shit. And with Dumbo, it was even worse. So we were walking down Hollywood Boulevard by the El Capitan that's owned by Disney, and all they show is their product, of course. And they were Dumbo was the big thing. And I said to Robert, there's nothing on this earth <laughs> that would make me go in and see a live-action version of Dumbo because I was traumatized by the animated version of this fucker. <laughs> so I'm never going to see him. And this is my problem, even with horror movies today, if cats or dogs or any... I just can't watch this stuff. Mm. I mean, there's a movie Mark Wahlberg did called Fear, and I thought it was really well done and everything, but there was a dog that's killed in it. And the minute that happened, I was out the door. <laughs> and I just tell screenwriters and stuff, I said, look... You can sacrifice babies to the devil. I mm. don't care. But you leave cats and dogs alone. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that the horror movies have always been cathartic for people. And for me, I just made such a career out of it because when I was in school, horror movies were like verboten to a lot of... And I went to a Catholic grade school. So I remember getting in trouble for taking my fellow classmates to see William Castle's 13 Ghosts. <laughs> I mean, of all Bill Castle's movie, if I take them to see Homicidal, I can understand getting in the principal's office because that movie scared the shit out of me. But 13 Ghosts, really? And I got called on the carpet and they said, you're, you're corrupting your, your, your classmates, to which, as Russ Meyer would say, I'm glad to do it. Uh -huh. That's what Russ used to say about making, when they asked him if he ever made softcore, he said, I'm glad to do it. So, yeah, so horror movies have always been very, very good to me. Uh -huh. And then, by the time I got into college, which was in the early 70s, like 71, I believe, that's when I transferred to San Francisco State, horror, movies in general were then being taught in college. Because I remember when there were no cinema courses. Mm -hmm. And I was going to San Francisco State when Hayakawa was the dean. And we had our first film programs in there. And among the, the faculty was a man named Dr. Leonard Wolf that did the annotated Dracula. And there was a 
poet, a poetry teacher there named Stan Lee, who was married to a lady named Anne, who was at home, you know, drinking too much and worrying about the loss of her daughter, and she puts it all in a little number called Interview with a Vampire, mm. which Leonard proofread. <laughs> and I remember when Leonard was reading it, he said, this is going to be huge. <laughs> and he was right. But at that time in San Francisco, not to digress, but there was a story going around that there was a very handsome young student, blonde student like Lestat, that was drinking human blood. <laughs> and this was prior to them discovering that there were groups of people, pre-Manson sort of thing, that were drinking blood in ritual and stuff. But I mean, vampire. You know, it's just bringing up that wonderful kind of what if... You know, which is what made The Exorcist such a phenomenon. Was like, what if there really was a devil? What if there really were demons? What if, what if? And that propels us into horror. Horror allows you to suspend belief. And I do think, you know, being religious in some cases helps. For me, it doesn't, being an atheist. Mm. But um, Which is why movies that get steeped down in Catholicism kind of turn me off. Because, you know, being repelled by crosses and things... That's why I like the Polanski vampire. He gets a Jewish vampire. Hey, you got the wrong vampire. You know, that kind of thing. No one likes Dance of the Vampires but me. Yeah, so my involvement in horror films goes back to when I was a, a grade school kid. So did you say you studied film as well? Well, I, I took the classes that were offered to me. Uh, at the time I was going to San Francisco State, we had James Dickey uh -huh. as a guest, uh, lecturer and teacher. And Deliverance had come out, and so he was really a big deal, but kind of insufferable in many ways. And he wanted to, uh, forgotten who started the film studies for him, but yeah, um, both in junior college and in college I took some film classes. But living in San Francisco during this period, my film school was Berkeley, the Telegraph Rep Theater. Uh -huh. the Telegraph Rep Theater that was in Berkeley is where I saw all the classic uh, silent horror films, where I saw Caligari on the big screen, where I first saw Citizen Kane on the big screen, where, and then in Oakland, I actually went to see Paul Linney's The Man Who Laughs on the big screen with Gaylord Carter at the organ. Mm -hmm. And that's the first and only time I truly realized how important silent movies were. Because when you watch them on DVD or you watch them in a 16, either it's just... We had a screening of the Phantom of the Opera here at the Egyptian a few years ago, and they had a Blackhawk 16 million. I couldn't believe it. it was so awful. And I even wanted to say to people before they watched it, because some people said, I've never seen the Phantom of the Opera. Well, you're not going to see it today either, because this is an awful print, mm -hmm. and the Phantom of the Opera is not a great movie. It's not. The only scenes that, that, that remain are the ones that Cheney directed himself. Rupert Julian's credited with directing that thing. And it's a snooze fest, except for the key moments of Cheney confrontation, you know, the unmasking, the blah, blah. But uh, Phantom of the Opera, isn't it funny? The most maligned of all the Phantoms is the Terrence Fisher Phantom of the Opera. Mm. And it's probably the best one. I, because the Claude Rains is awful. Mm. The Cheney's not all that fabulous, except for him. And when, and the Robert England, well, let's not even talk about it, uh, did... did did Argento do one? Yes, he did. He is did, that, is yeah. that uh, uh, Julian Sands? Yeah, I, I don't even recollect it. It was about, it was about rat forn fornication, which I don't think was in Gaston LaRue somehow. I suspect not. But the Hammer Phantom 
has got a barnstorming performance by Michael Goff and a great performance by uh, Herbert Long. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why people dislike it so much. I think it's... So I, I personally, I, I think that there's this tendency within um, film criticism and film fandom to take the received wisdom of the experts of the past and then just to regurgitate it. So if you're told that this film is shit, that's what you'll go into. You know, that's a very good point. It's a very good point indeed, because if we look at, well, the classic story, Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. When Bonnie and Clyde came out, all the major critics hated it, but the French knew they were onto something, and the fashion industry knew they were onto something. And all because Bardot was going to do this with the, the fabulous mm. Faye Dunaway looks and everything, which made Faye Dunaway and Beatty for that matter. All the critics went back and changed their minds, which is unheard of. You know, people like the New York Times going, you know what, this is a masterpiece. Well, everyone hated it when it came out. Mm -hmm. And I think with horror movies, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein certainly became a classic in a hurry. And I've championed The Black Cat, the 34 version, mm. since the beginning. Uh, because it's my favorite of the universal horrors of the 30s. And then for the 40s, I like a little number called Night Monster, 1942. I would recommend that. Unfortunately, Bela Lugosi's given top billing and he's just a butler, which is shameful, mm. but that's universal for you. you know. Um, having said that, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a tendency to... You've got, you know, it's like Timothy Leary. Don't, tell peop don't let people tell you what drugs are like. Take them and then you'll tell me what they're like. This brings us into sort of the way that, you know, you and I work, I guess, as, as critics. So, for instance, if I'm doing a review of something new that I've not seen before, I'll try and avoid reading any other commentaries about it until after I've watched it and written my piece, because I'm aware that I'm going to be influenced by whatever I read. I'll give you an example of that right this week. I just saw the new Pet Cemetery. Okay. All right, when it's over, the dust settles, and I go, Why, do I like it? Do I dislike it? It's kind of creepy, blah, blah. And I thought uh, John Lidgow was great. So I, may, I walk outside, and they're all millennial kids, you know, and they're going, I, what? I liked it. The next morning, people I know and supposedly respect were like, oh, this movie was shit. I was so disappointed. And I looked at who was saying this, and I realized that these were people that weren't going to like anything but the original. Mm-hmm. Now, this new Pet Cemetery takes some liberties at the end with Mr. King's novel, but so what? Stephen doesn't mind, so why should I? And, well, why would he? This movie's going to make some dough, I think. Um, but no, I think that there is a tendency to get on bandwagons. And there's a ten I remember the, first, I, I, the night before I saw the new Suspiria, mm -hmm. I heard it was like an equal hate-love thing. So I went to see it, and I honestly did not know what to think, because you just have to dismiss the first movie. Mm. We're, if we're talking remakes, and we bar in both cases, there are people that will prefer the new ones to the old, and people that will vice versa. I don't think anyone's wrong here. It's just a matter of personal taste. Um, a movie like Mother, and this is another thing, Mother and the Lars von Trier, The House that Jack Built, if I believed everything people said to me online, it was like they were running screaming out of the Cannes Film Festival. This is too horrifying. I can't. <laughs> well, you know, I've sat through Mother waiting to be horrified and run out of the theater screaming, and it, it, I was fine. 
And I and then when it was over, I wondered what was the all the fuss about. But you've worked in this industry long enough to yeah, know as well how, the, how how it works and how the press kind of is manipulated. But it's just out and out fabrication. Of course it is. No one. I don't know what it would take to make me run screaming out of a theater. I Probably have, shotgun blast or something. I think I have only sat in a couple of films where people have left in droves. One was. Uh, I went to a preview screening of Punch Drunk Love many years ago. <laughs> Half the audience walked really? out. Really? Because it wasn't the Adam Sandler film that they were expecting. Oh, well. For me, it was a brilliant piece of work yeah. because Adam Sandler finally is getting to act properly. And, and, and I, he's I, not I, being an idiot. And I right. like the mood, but uh, literally oh, people my. were just walking out in droves. Well, that's an unusual choice because uh, I remember going into the Kellen Lutz version of Hercules. <laughs> I was the only one in the theater, oh. and the projectionist came down into the into the theater and said, "Excuse me, would would we give you a ticket? To, I would like to go home." <laughs> and you're the only person in here. And I said, "You know what? I want to see this movie in 3D. So you're going to have to go back up and show it to me because I don't want to see anything else at the Cineplex today." And he, he was furious with me. But that was I was the only per. And oh. I have gone to a the fit the, the three the trilogy of the Fifty Shades of Black Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. Or we know they're terrible. Yeah. But I have a, a girlfriend that loves to, you know, go to these movie really bad movies, mm-hmm. and she and her husband are like, uh, he doesn't like them, so I go with her because you know I'm I'm the token gay guy that she can go to these movies with. So it's always on St Valentine's Day, <laughs> or the. Chinese theater, St. Valentine's Day matinee, first day, for uh-huh. both, all three uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. We're the only people there. She brings a riding crop. We take pictures of this S&M simulation in the lobby. We go and we've got our little drinkies and our little edibles and everything. We're going to watch these terrible movies. We've had a ball. And there were actually, the second movie, there was like two or three other like-minded people in there. And we just made a party out of it. <laughs> so sometimes, and they're really unwanted. But I will say this, Dakota, uh, Dakota, what's her name? Dakota Johnson, considering it's a part that's unactable, she's amazing in it because Mm. it's a, it's, it's from a, you can't read the book. The book is like unreadable, unfilmable, unwatchable. And there we were. But yeah, I mean, sometimes someone's trash is what is it? Someone's garbage is someone else's gold, you know. So you've done a lot of commentaries over the years. <laughs> yes, I, I'm a hooker. I look. I went from doing things. I, I oh, never mind. I mean, I mean, I've done Satan's cheerleaders. What have I got to? Uh, so doing this sort of the, the film criticism that you do. Yes. You, you, you've. So I mean, I realize that some of our listeners maybe won't be so familiar with your name because you do work mostly within the realms of cult uh well films. not anymore I but mean, also you're very u.s based and and so because we're, we're based in the uk there will be people who listen to this right who, who well aware. well in the uk i've done uh, a number of dvds for arrow mm-hmm. olive and 88 films for 88 films i would highly recommend these three titles grizzly the toolbox murders and Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars, because from 88 pictures, I did exclusively for them three 30-minute interviews Mm -hmm. with my reflections on Toby Hooper for uh, Invaders, Cameron Mitchell for Toolbox, and Christopher George for Grizzly. And they're unique because they're not audio commentary, they're 
reflections of me for talking for 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. You can understand, you can imagine me talking that long. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. I actually was talked without taking a breath, someone said. <laughs> but, uh, but for audio commentaries, I started out doing just Vincent. Pro- well, the first audio commentary I ever did was for William Lustig, the director of the Maniac Cop movie. He's uh-huh. a great guy. And Bill asked me for his company, Anchor Bay, if I would do Harry Kumel's Daughters of Darkness with uh, Delphine Sarig and um, John Carlin. Uh-huh. So I got John Carlin, or rather Bill did, and John Carlin and I did a, co- a commentary, because I love Daughters of Darkness. It's one of my favorite lesbian vampire movies. And that was my very first one, and that was back in 90-something. Since then, I've done about 65 mm-hmm. commentaries. Lately... I've done um, a Ginger Rogers movie, uh, uh, The Magnificent Doll, mm-hmm. about Dolly Madison. I've done Father Goose, uh, By Myself, Cary Grant movie. I've done The Detective with Frank Sinatra, Ten to Midnight with Charles Bronson, uh, Anastasia with Ingrid Bergman, uh, The Barefoot Contessa with Ava Gardner. Um, I've done... Um, with Eric Roberts, I've done Runaway Train, and mm-hmm. I worked for Canon. I've literally done every genre now, mm. but I started out in horror. And I just did Ordeal by Innocence for Kino, which is an Agatha Christie. Um, and what else have I done? I just did Kiss... I just did Kiss of the Tarantula, <laughs> an unwatchable Texas movie <laughs> that I watched... I did one called Don't Look in the Basement, and my only thing to advise anyone was don't. <laughs> just don't look in the basement. Don't open the door. Don't open the window. Just don't. So when you're doing one of these these sort of things, are you looking at it uh, purely from a film history point of view? Are you looking at it in terms of the text of the film? Are you looking at it in I go to the of... Margaret Herrick Library at the Academy, and if they don't have anything on it, then I get truly desperate. <laughs> and I think of it in terms of... Uh, you can't, ju- uh, the worst commentaries you can do is where someone just goes to the IMDb and every time an actor walks on the screen, you rattle off their credits. Yeah. If you're going to inform, and I like to do commentary where you've invited David DelVal into your apartment, and if he's not, you know, smoking all your pot and drinking all your booze, he's watching the movie, and he, kind of like the League of Gentlemen kind of thing. But no, no, actually, because I do have a, a background in film history, yeah. and I, it does bode me well when I'm talking about these movies. I don't like to prepare scripts, although I have done so. And I understand now with companies like MGM, they demand to have approval. Mm. So in other words, you can't just waltz in and do it, even if you script it, like Tim Lucas does. They still will look at what he's doing if he does something for MGM, as will all the rest of these people, Mm. whether it's uh, my friend Lee Gambon or, you know... Uh, the usual suspects, as we call them. Yes. Um, prior to being incarcerated. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I've done... Father Goose was an experience because I went down to the Margaret... I didn't know what because I'd seen the movie, but it's not my particular cup of tea. Um, but I found Cary Grant's script that he had annotated little notes in. And I began to notice that Cary loved to X out his dialogue and give it to other people. <laughs> Not because he was being generous, he just didn't want to do any work, you know. He's a lazy sod. So it's like Leslie Caron has all these speeches. They were all his. And he said to the director, you know what, she's doing such a great job. Give her this. Give her this. 
So all of a sudden, it began to take flight. Then I read Diane Cannon's book, uh-huh. where Carrie was dropping acid and doing Father Goose. And all of a sudden, this movie became rather fascinating to me. Uh-huh. So I, you know, and I got good reviews for it. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I will prepare, mm. of course. Um, I think it helps enormously if I like the movie. But I, like everything else, like when I started collecting photographs, I used to collect photographs that I admired and wanted. Now I collect photographs that someone else might want. So it's the same, you know. See, it's funny because I always find the best reviews that I ever wrote of anything were the films that I hated the most. Well, not, let's not, see not, what people think about Don't Look in the Base. Because the, one, <laughs> the, the ones I like are okay, but you eventually run out of things to say, and it's always just, yeah, this was great, this was great. But the stuff that you really hate, to do it properly, you have to really get into why this is a bad bad production on all sorts of levels and it often offers you a chance to be a little bit more um, a little bit more clever I guess well the best the most un- unclever way of arguing that sentence the uh, best audio commentaries I've done uh, I did one with the late Nick Redman for Theatre of Blood mm-hmm. and that was a great commentary because it came from the heart um, I did a commentary for uh both the Dr. Goldfoot movies of Vincent Price, and I had my friend David Dakota as my moderator. And the movies are awful, but we just had a ball because, <laughs> like, Vincent Vincent would be doing something and David would go, she's on fire in this scene. <laughs> I had so much fun with that. And, of course, when the reviews came out, they said, well, you know, the movies are terrible, but if you listen to them with these commentaries, it's very entertaining. And so when they, you know, it's like if they give you lemons, give them lemonade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try and be entertaining. And the scholarly academic side of me, whatever that may be, uh, kind of like, I, you know, if, if there's something to inform, I will inform. Um, I think with the Vincent Price titles, and I've done about half of his catalog, uh, the ones where I have personal knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I the only commentaries I, I, I feel bad I didn't get, uh, for example, The Black Cat, 1934, the, the uh, Lugosi Karloff. I could literally do that commentary right now. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I'll get to do it unless Arrow does it. Cruising, I would love to work on. I don't necessarily mean I'm the world's greatest authority on it, but I love the movie. And I know they need a commentary with Billy Friedkin and then, you know, maybe there'll probably be three or four because Arrow does such great work. Mm-hmm. I've done I've done a number of things for Arrow. They're Dr. Fives box set, they're Blood and Black Lace, they're Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the Tower of London, and they're Six Gothic Tales, that box set that's so beautiful. I did commentary on The Haunted Palace and forgotten what the other one was. I've, I've done so many. And I just won a Rondo last year for uh, Best Commentary on Dario Argento's Suspiria. And I'm up this year for The Killing Kind, Mm. uh, Curtis Harrington, that I did for Vinegar Syndrome with my friend David Dakota. And I want to win that, so people should (laughs) fucking vote for me. What's wrong with you people? Don't give it to those limeys, give it to me. Uh, But anyway, yeah, I mean, there's there's no pattern or recipe for how to do anything. Mm. I think you should approach each project with whatever it is about it. You can bring something to the table. Um, obviously, when I'm doing something like Ginger Rogers' Magnificent Doll, I actually found a connection with that. You know what? 
when I lived in Palm Springs, Ginger lived in Palm Springs, and my mother used to buy her old cast-offs that she was selling through a little boutique <laughs> in Palm Springs. Wow. So I actually went out to Ginger Rogers' house and met her, uh-huh. and there was this doll sitting on a table, and I remarked, oh, what's that? And she said, it's a prop from the movie I did on the life of Dolly Madison. And who would have thought, sitting in that air-conditioned house in the desert like 30 years ago, that in 2018, I would be doing an audio commentary for that very movie. So you see, life is... You know, I've been very lucky to have met so many people that have long since passed away. Like when I was in high school, I met Lillian Gish. Mm -hmm. You know, if I want to make people think I'm 100 years old, I said, you interview Lillian Gish? Yeah, I interviewed. No, I didn't interview D.W. Griffith, but I did interview Lillian Gish. (laughs) And, uh, but, you know, she lived into the 70s, so yeah. uh, I am just regret I'd never met Peter Lorre, although I would have been 11 years old. It wouldn't, let's see, 64? Yeah, I would have been like 13. Yeah. But I still would have had stuff to say. I did get a phone call from Boris Karloff when he was in Hollywood just a year before he died, uh-huh. and I didn't think it was him. So I'm yeah. like, he's having to explain to me that he, because uh, I go, oh, I can do that, Voif. He went, well, I'm sure you can, but I am Boris Karloff. And <laughs> what, I was, when I, what was Karloff phoning you for? Well, I was doing a local horror show called The Bob Wilkins Show called Creature Features. Okay. And Bob and Harry Martin, who was the uh, newscaster, went down to Hollywood from Sacramento to do a day on the set of a TV show called The Name of the Game, uh-huh. which would starred Gene Barry, Robert Stack, a bunch of people. It was filmed at Universal. Rowdy McDowell was one of the guests, and Boris Karloff was the other. So Bob goes up to Boris Karloff and says, I have a, my buddy in Sacramento, David, loves you beyond anything. Would you call him? He, he just adores you. Wow. And Boris says, well, of course. <laughs> he calls me up and I go, who the fuck is this? <laughs> I didn't say that, no. I, I didn't swear in those days much. And uh, But when I realized it was him, I just like was was just like nearly in tears. It was just like, oh. That's and he invited me to come down and watch him tape the Jonathan Winters show. Uh-huh. And I couldn't make it. I couldn't raise the money to take that. And the airfare back then was like, round trip from Sacramento to LA was like 30 bucks. Yeah. And I didn't have any money. And I was just like, I regret this to this day. I could have spent the afternoon with Boris Kotloff and Jonathan Winters and... Agnes Moorhead and whoever else was. But you, you, I mean, to be fair, you have had a. I've been. I can't. A, complain. You know. I mean. I, I cannot I, complain. I I've listened to your name dropping <laughs> the last. Well, few you days know what, and, and I want to address that. <laughs> I one of the criticisms I get on my commentaries is that I name drop. Mm-hmm. But if you know someone and you're friends with them, is that still name dropping? No, or what? And if it's relevant, which I mean, whenever you mention. I, I accept flippantly because I know we have no, no, but I mean, I, I get this. No, yeah. I mean, I get a review that I name drop. Well, you know, there was one person that didn't. What was it on the uh, the Vincent Price interview that I did with him, which is universally applauded mm-hmm. for one reason or another? Someone said, "Well, David talks too much." Well, you know, let me just put it this way: you know, I've done over sixty-five of these sons of a bitches, so I must be doing something right. And I keep getting employed, so what mm-hmm. can I say? And the people that I think are detractors are jealous. 
That's the only thing I can think of. They're just jealous that I've... You know, it's one thing I noticed on Facebook, people take pictures with celebrities, sure. but, but they don't know them. They've just walked up to them at a, at a meet and greet and have, take a picture, take a picture. And I have friends that have thousands of pictures with everybody you can think of, but they don't know them. Some of the people that I talk about, like Vincent Price or Christopher Lee or Michael Goff, I knew them. Yeah. I had dinner with them. I hung out with them. It wasn't just a, a, a like a... And even sometimes if I've just spent, uh, like you would do with an interview with someone, you can build a rapport with somebody that you've interviewed or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think who the worst... The worst interview I ever had was... Uh, well, it was a non-interview. It was Telly Savalas. Right. And actually, I had a good time with him. But I wanted to interview him. I think it was for Tim Lucas or something. And I met him at the univer- at the hotel up at Universal City. And we met in the bar. And I, we chatted for a minute. And he said, well, I have to have at least $500 to do an interview. <laughs> and I said, well, that's nice. He said, well, obviously, you're getting paid. I said, no. He said, let me get this right. You want me to do an interview. You're not getting paid. I'm not getting paid. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to buy you a drink, and we're just going to sit here and talk. And fuck both of them, because <laughs> you shouldn't do things and not get paid for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna, I'm your Dutch uncle here. So, I mean, how can I be angry with him? I didn't get the interview, but it was certainly great advice mm-hmm. to sit and have drinks with Telly Savalas and have him tell you that your employers are shits and you shouldn't be doing this. So I mean that's my see every I have a story for well, all. Do, of do you find that that's something that still happens now? So I mean we're, we're all the time. Are you kidding? You know I mean I I certainly would still I probably have more work if I did more stuff for well, free. Well here's the deal, Robert. When you first met me, or even before that, mm. when I first started, I did a lot of stuff for free. Yeah, because that's how you build your, well, it your is. name, your brand. But you know, forty years later. When someone says do this, it's it'll it'll get your name out there. I have to it's, say, it's I, love I think <laughs> I think my name's out there. I mean, I'm kind of trying to pull it back a little in some cases, but no, I mean, look. So, which is the point at which you go? I, I mean, it's advice I think for anyone who's working in this industry. Yeah, there is a point at which you should stop doing the freebies, and when is that? Well, I think when you're sixty. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a beginning? Definitely, maybe before, maybe yeah. when you're 40. No, I think it, de- first of all, it depends on the project. It depends on your connection to it. For example, I shouldn't say this, but I will. I'm so crazy about, you know, being part of this Friedkin cruising experience uh-huh. that I would waive a fee to work on it. Sure. Yeah, but you know, I'm old. Arrow won't hear this, so we won't even. Know that. But 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 no. But I mean, Arrow, they may listen. I don't no, know. no. Well, I mean, well, don't do pay me, but let me just show you my sincerity. Uh, uh, no, but I mean, um, some of the movies that I regretted not getting. Uh, I mean, they just put out the strange door. Mm. Richard Stapley was my next door neighbor, and he's the star of that movie. So who should be doing the commentary on it? Me or somebody that didn't know anybody? Mm. And I follow that through with every title, whether it's a Curtis Harrington title or a Vincent Price title or a Barbara Steele title. I'm not saying I'm the world's expert, but I can give uh, more than just a an educated uh, comment on their work, mm. you know. And uh, I think that's important. There aren't many of us left that had these experiences um so i think while we're around we should be taken advantage of because you know 
The day will come when there won't be anyone. I mean, I've been doing these Return of the Living Dead tributes mm. until I'm down to six people because Jimmy Karen's gone, Toby Hooper's gone, Dan O'Bannon's gone, George Romero's gone. It's so funny. They're all gone but John Carpenter, and he's the one that everyone predicted would die first. <laughs> he's never going to die. Not that he I should, but I mean, I eventually he will. Yeah. But, you know, he won't when anyone expects it. No, you know? after I get to meet him and then do yes. then. Yes, yes. Well, look at Roger. We're just celebrating his birthday today, and he's in his 90s. 90 is the new 50, probably, maybe. Roger is, um, yeah, quite spectacular and, and what a legacy of films that he, he, he will leave behind. Well, I, I just wrote a little thing about him on Facebook, and I said, well, you know, I've been a, a fan since House of Usher, and then I thought, well, no, I've been a fan way before that. I mean, when I, before I really knew who he was, mm-hmm. I had seen The Wasp Woman, Not of This Earth, Little Shop of Horrors, Bucket of Blood, uh, and I'd love Dementia 13 that he didn't direct, but he certainly was responsible for putting it together, and The Terror. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first moved here... I have one poster I will never sell, which is this half sheet for the terror, because I got Jack Hill to sign it, Roger to sign it, uh, Dick Miller to sign it. The only one that hasn't signed it is Karloff, and it's because he's no longer with us. Uh, But there's a movie that's legendary, because it was shot in three days, apparently, and Mm -hmm. everybody worked on it, you know, and it was, Karloff was on it just long enough to pay back what he owed Roger. And I understand from everyone, when he went back to England, Karloff would say, never mention the name Roger Corman again, <laughs> ever. And they never worked together again. Wow. Can't have been good then. No. No. The Raven and the Terror. Yeah. But Karloff did a number of pictures for AIP, as many as as he could before he got sick. Yeah. I know the Crimson, the Curse of the Crimson Altar. I did the audio commentary for that with Barbara Steele. And then they, sometimes when I do a commentary, they'll port it over to something else. Mm. For example, I'm on the 10 to Midnight that Scream Factory just put out Mm. because the commentary that I did for Twilight Time got ported over. Mm. Which is, you know. You must have done stuff back in the Lizardist days as well. Oh, I did. I worked for Image. I worked for Image Entertainment. And I did all their. I did all the Poe liner notes yeah. and provided the photos. And then when they did the Tomb of Lygia, I may, and I'm not going to take credit for this particularly, but I may have done the first audio commentary period because I recorded Elizabeth Shepard and I watching the Tomb of Lygia in my apartment huh. on just a little, little portable tape recorder. Uh-huh. That tape has been on the Laserdisc for Tomb of Lygia and two of the DVDs of Tomb of Lygia. Wow. And Elizabeth Shepard got mad at me, and we've been friends for years and years and years, because she thought I got paid for that. I said, Elizabeth, we did it for nothing in Mm -hmm. my apartment, so how would I have gotten paid for it? And then she thought that Image paid for it. I said, honey, Image doesn't pay for anything. At least not. I mean, they paid for liner notes, but they're not going to pay. I had begged them to put it on. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to preserve it. And even though the quality wasn't that good, you have to remember the year I did that. Elizabeth remembered more mm. that particular year, 30 years ago, than she would right now. Yeah. So, but that was the first one. And that is on the laser disc for Tomb of Lygia. Uh, I did Master of the World, Premature Burial. Then I did uh, Mars Needs Women. Hmm. And I got a hold of Tommy Kirk and did a phone interview with him. I did Burn Witch Burn, and I did a phone interview with Janet Blair. 
Uh-huh. And I also, uh, Sidney Hayes and I were friends, so I got inner quotes from him. But we didn't do an audio. I begged Janet Blair to do one, and she wouldn't. <laughs> and she was living at the beach at the time. So yeah, I, I started in Laserdiscs. And the very first documentary I ever did was The Horror of It All for Gene Feltman. Mm-hmm. It came out in 1983. And uh, that was narrated by Jose Ferrer. And uh, I got Ruben Malmulian, Curtis Harrington, Martin Beswick, uh, Ray Bradbury, John Carradine. They all appear on camera in that. It's not a bad little documentary. I've done several, several since. So, bearing in mind, we're going to have to wrap this up fairly soon. Uh, what are you proudest of? I'm, pr- I'm proudest of my interview with Vincent Price. I think I'll be remembered for that. And I'm very proud of some of the audio commentaries I've done, especially... Theater of Blood, Blood and Black Lace, Suspiria. Um, I'm proud of the, of the books I've written, Lost Horizon, Behind Beneath Hollywood Sign, Six Reels Under, and the soon-to-come-out Del Valley of the Dolls. And your book, that'll be four. That'll be four? Well, possibly five. Yes, I, think we, five. We, we, I think we were three books we talked about at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, no, and I'm and I definitely... Two, two of them I actually, there. you know, when I moved here, back in 2013, when I came back to Hollywood, uh-huh. I famously said, as I checked into this little bed and breakfast that I lived in for four and a half years. I have no more stories. All the great stories are behind me. There's no interesting people anymore. I lived in that apartment building four and a half years, and I now have a whole book just on <laughs> living in that building with all the crazy people, because I was living between the Academy Awards and the Magic Castle, right on the corner of the most notoriously wicked city in the world. And what a fool I was to make such a stupid remark. And I now realize that you have stories right up until the day you die. Yeah. And you can just, you know, and, and that's the way one should look at it. And it's just me being a lazy writer that I don't, uh, I mean, I was sitting, I, I just did a, a foreword for one of those EC comic collections. And I'd never done a comic book book before mm. for Dark Horse Comics. So they wanted me to do Crime Suspense. And I chose that because I love film noir. So I said, well, I'll tie in film noir, because I had to be from a film point of view, because I don't know comics that well. So I was sitting there, and I, of course, waited till the deadline to turn it in. So the night before, they absolutely had to have it. I'm sitting in my, in my little uh, apartment in my room, and I'm staring out of this brick window in the center of Hollywood. And I realize, here's my story. As I sit in the Amour arms, the moon is filling into my apartment. And, I, and of course, the Black Dahlia lived in my building. So it just, it just flowed. Mm-hmm. As everything does when you're put up against the walls. The way I wrote my college papers, I waited a little. I had a year to write one, and I waited till the last. Anyway, nicely way we get on. I mean, I, I can't. I cannot work unless if if you give me a month, twenty nine days later, I'll start on it. Yeah. But with uh, with that, so I'm kind of proud of that. But and my my documentary work. I did a documentary for a really talented guy named Mark Hartley who lives in Australia called. Electric Boogaloo, mm-hmm. the history of canon. And I've been getting more attention from that. And I must say, I'm really proud of it because I am there. He interviewed over 200 celebrities. And I mean, celebrities Sharon Stone, Richard Chamberlain, mm-hmm. you know, Jean Luc Godard. And I'm in that more than they are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the trailer. So, you know. My advice to anyone is never say no to anything until you really weigh what it will do for you. I can tell you examples of where I've done something for free, Mm -hmm. 
when it's presented, it then got me work. So you can't, don't just ever say no, 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 unless you're being paid. If you and I had done that, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Because no. I've done a lot of stuff for free in the past. Um, but when you're, you're not a professional until you're paid for what you do. Mm. So the first time I ever got paid for a magazine article, I realized, you know, now I'm like H.P. Lovecraft because he was like lived off those magazine mm. things. Uh, of course, I'd be being paid the same thing he was in 1937, you know, like 50 cents a word or whatever. But uh, no, don't say no to things. Always weigh the possibilities. And, you know, the biggest thing, and I would say this to even the most famous, the most uh, lauded film directors, have one person in your entourage or in your friends, circle of friends, that will tell you the truth. Because what's wrong with movies today when I go to cast and crew screenings, which I shouldn't go to, especially if they're new movies, because I sit there with my arms folded wide and say, this is shit! And I can't do it because it's a room full of people that are like, they're, they're, they're completely in a, in a trance over making this awful... Pe- anyway, so I'm sitting there like, I can't say what I mean, and I'm lying through my teeth. But if that filmmaker had had one person in his entourage that said, you know what, maybe you should rethink this. Mm-hmm. Or this isn't so awesome. But if you're always telling that everything is awesome, everything is awesome, everything isn't going to be awesome. And I'm the one that has to fucking look at it. So my advice is have one person that will tell you the truth. And listen to them. Your ego should not be like a shield that has no penetration at all. Somebody has to get to you so that you... Don't just make stupid. I wish someone had done this with me on a number of of life issues, you know. But sometimes it's good to make mistakes. But on the other hand, I could have certainly benefited from not making so many mistakes. I think that's a good point to leave it. I think that's good advice, and I don't want to sully it with with well, more. <laughs> so if people I, want to find out more about you, David, uh, well, are you I, available I, on social media these days? Yes, I'm on Facebook, and you can also reach me through sinisterimage.com. Uh, what's my other one? DelvalArchive at gmail dot, or, uh, gmail.net is my website, where the DelVal Archives. I have about 30 pieces on that that uh, I, I wrote. I used to like do a, a law, but when I first moved back here in 2013, I did this. Mm-hmm. I would write something like when the Argento Dracula came out. I wrote, you know, that Dracula was now a greeter at the Olive Garden. Welcome to the Olive Garden, because I hated the Argento Dracula so much. Uh, so I started writing these pieces. So they're all there for you to see. And they, I just haven't written any lately. I'll I, stick some links up on our website as well so people cool. can find, up, find you uh, on these And webs. you can find me currently at VCI Entertainment with Kiss of the Tarantula, Don't Look in the Basement, Blood in Black Lace, Ruby, and I'm leaving out something, but I'm sure they'll remind me, Ordeal by Innocence, Killing of Sister George, Female on the Beach, from Kino Lover, from Vinegar Syndrome, my Rondo-nominated The Killing Kind, one of Curtis Harrington's sickest movies, with my great friend David Dakota. Um, and I've got four or five more lined up after that, and a documentary on male nudity. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you very much. Oh, so thank you, pleasure. Robert. I'm just so glad we finally met face-to-face. Well, in my little pied de terre off absolutely. of Western, I mean. So just just to finish this up, um, 
David's apartment is crammed full of uh, horror memorabilia and uh, stuff he's worked on. It's uh, quite a sight to if, see. If you see there, hosted by me, that house of wax. That's why that's up. It's uh-huh. my name. My name's on a movie poster. <laughs> what more could I ask for? And to have autographed John Waters and Divine. Now, oh. There's there's the other spectrum of grindhouse cult that I love. Fantastic. And, and my my landlord makes shadow boxes. So now I have Trog, and the Mummy, and Black Sunday, and oh, brilliant. And the second version of Lolita, because I got to meet the actress who played Lolita in the remake with uh, Jeremy Irons. Uh-huh. Anyway. <laughs> David, thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. And hopefully we'll have you back on at some I would point. love it. I would love it. My thanks again to David for tour guiding me through old Hollywood and for opening up his home just off the Hollywood Boulevard for us. Remember, you can find out more about Cinepunked, including our publications and live events at cinepunked.com. Uh, you can follow us on our social media channels. We're Cinepunked on Facebook and Twitter and Cinepunked Film on Instagram. You can download our back catalogue of podcasts via the website or your podcast provider of choice. And we hope if you've enjoyed this episode, you'll subscribe or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until the next time, I'm Robert J.E. Simpson. Thanks for listening. Um, and you got yourself a show. <laughs> got yourself a show, that's it. Got yourself a show.